The hearing of the Subcommittee on General Farm Commodities and Risk Management, entitled A Hearing to Review Farm Policy with Undersecretary Robert Bonney, will come to order. So welcome, and uh, thanks to everyone for joining today's hearing. After brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our witness today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. In consultation with the ranking member and pursuant to Rule 11C, I think, or wait, is it 11C or 11E? Sorry, my, my vision's bad. E? E, I'm sorry, 11E. I wanna make members of the subcommittee aware that other members of the full committee may join us later. Today's hearing to review farm policy with USDA's Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, Robert Bonney, is an important opportunity for members of this subcommittee to share with USDA what our farmers back home are experiencing, as well as to hear updates on the status of programs under our jurisdiction. During the past year, the subcommittee has held a series of sessions, listening to our important stakeholders so we can keep a pulse on what's happening on the ground in farm country. We've held a hearing with a group of farmers, a crop insurance agent, and an ag economist to get a better understanding of how our farm safety net programs are working. What we learn from, there, from those is critically important as we evaluate how programs are working. We know that the pandemic has continued to impact all of society, including supply chain disruptions that have led to higher input costs for farmers. And farmers across the country have been experiencing more and more extreme weather events, a polar vortex, historic drought, multiple hurricanes, and tornadoes in December, no less. There are a variety of critical programs designed to help farmers through these tough times. I hear through pretty much every ag meeting that I have how important the federal crop insurance program is to help farmers manage this risk. Congress has also provided significant disaster funding to provide additional support for producers hit by extreme weather, funding for which was requested by the Biden administration last September. And commodity programs like ARC, PLC, and marketing assistance loans have been important safety net options for producers with several enhancements to those programs made in the last farm bill. And just yesterday, Secretary Vilsack announced an important new initiative, the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities, which will help develop new marketing opportunities for farmers. Under Secretary Bonney, I look forward to hearing your testimony and getting a sense of what you've been hearing and how programs you oversee are working to address the, the economic and growing con the growing conditions farmers have been experiencing. I'd now like to welcome the distinguished rank ranking member, the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, for any opening remarks that he may have. Thank you, Chairwoman Bustos. And I'd also like to thank uh, Undersecretary Bonnie for being here today and congratulate you on your confirmation to head up the Farm Production and Conservation Mission Area. Uh, over the past five years, that mission area has been extremely busy with uh, implementation of the 2018 Farm Bill, disaster assistance, uh, working to combat illegal tariffs from China and protect the food supply in the face of disruptions uh, due to COVID. I hope that we use uh, our lessons learned from, from these past couple of years as we go into the next Farm Bill to, to help improve uh, on all of those areas. I grew up working on a farm and uh, owned several hundred head of cattle with my grandfather at one point, but today I'm part of the 98% of Americans whose primary connection to agriculture is eating every day. Only 2% of the people in this country are classified as farm producers. 
That comes from a pretty broad definition. And I want everybody to understand that anybody who has the potential to produce $1,000 in sales in this country, by definition, is considered an ag producer. The reality is there are about 200,000 full-time farmers and farms, most of which are family-owned, that are responsible for producing about 85% of the food supply in this country. I want to say that again. 200,000 or approximately one-tenth of 1% of the American population. Our farm families are responsible for 85% of the food supply on the shelves that we consume on a daily basis. It's a very small line of producers that stands between us being self-reliant and us being dependent on foreign countries for our groceries. That's why I think it's critical that we have an effective farm safety net and that we have open and honest discussions about where our food supply comes from and the danger of disrupting that from some of the policies that are being promoted by the extreme left. Mr. Secretary, I look forward to hearing your uh, comments and your concerns today. I wanna to thank you for appearing before us. Uh, I look forward to additional oversight as we push forward in these years. And I, again, want to charge the committee with making sure that we're taking care of America's food supply. With that, Madam Chair, I yield. Thank you to our ranking member, uh, Mr. Scott. The chair would request that other members submit their opening statements for the record so our witness may begin his testimony and ensure that there's ample time for questions. Um, with that, uh, I'd like to uh, introduce Undersecretary Robert Bonney. Uh, he oversees the mission area that houses the Farm Service Agency Risk Manage Management Agency, Natural Resources Conservation Service, each of which plays a critical role in delivering programs and assistance for producers across the country. Prior to joining USDA, Mr. Bonney was at Duke University and also worked at the Bipartisan Policy Center. This is Mr. Bonney's second time serving in a confirmed position at USDA, having previously been Undersecretary of Natural Resources and Environment during the Obama administration. And he's also served in senior staff roles at USDA under both the Obama and Biden administrations. He brings a deep wealth of knowledge and experience to his position. Welcome, Mr. Undersecretary Bonney. We look forward to hearing your testimony. You'll have five minutes and you'll see that there is a timer that should be visible to you on your screen. And we'll count down to zero, at which point your time will have expired. Undersecretary Bonney, please begin when you're ready. Madam Chair, Ranking Member Austin, appreciate the opportunity to be with you today to discuss Farm Bill implementation and USDA's ongoing work to serve America's farmers, ranchers, and forest owners. While COVID-19 continues to present challenges for in-person staffing of USDA offices, our staff have continued to do their jobs at full capacity. Indeed, we have implemented several new pandemic programs on top of our existing farm safety net and conservation programs. As we've navigated the pandemic, our priority has been on the safety of our staff. FPAC has deployed an incident management team to monitor the spread of the disease and to adjust staffing accordingly. COVID-19 is not the only challenge that American agriculture faces. Between 35 to 40% of the contiguous U.S. experienced severe, severe to exceptional drought last year. The region hardest hit was the West in which 80% uh, experienced severe or exceptional drought. 
In response, USDA both updated the ELAP program to help cover the cost of transporting feed for livestock that rely on grazing and lowered the drought intensity threshold that triggers assistance. FSA is now moving quickly to deliver $10 billion provided by Congress in additional disaster assistance to agricultural producers impacted by wildfire, droughts, hurricanes, winter storms, and other eligible disasters from 2020 and 2021. In implementing this law, our goals are to reduce the paperwork burden on producers, ease agency administrative burdens while maintaining accountability, and encourage producers to use existing safety net programs by linking assistance to them. USDA will follow a two-phase process to administer relief to eligible producers with the first phase utilizing a streamlined process that relies on existing data that producers have already provided USDA. We plan to distribute at least half of the 750 million for livestock through the first phase by the end of March. With increasing extreme weather, crop insurance remains a vital tool for agriculture. RMA continues to develop and expand its offering to row crops, fruits and vegetables, and other parts of agriculture. We recently announced a micro farm policy to ensure we are helping producers of all size. We developed and implemented the pandemic cover crop program to incentivize use of cover crops across 12 million acres. We recently announced an additional insurance coverage for corn farmers who split apply nitrogen, a cost-effective and environmentally friendly practice. Agriculture has a vital role to play in mitigating greenhouse gases. Fortunately, many of the practices that benefit the climate also improve agricultural and forest productivity. USDA's approach to climate change for agriculture and forestry will be voluntary, incentive-based, producer-led, and grounded in science. Yesterday, the Secretary announced the partner Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities Program. Using CCC dollars, USDA will partner with agriculture and forestry to scale the adoption of climate smart practices associated with commodity production and quantify and verify the climate gains from these pilot projects. Our goal is to de-risk the adoption of climate smart practices so that farmers, ranchers, and forest owners can benefit from the development of emerging markets for climate smart commodities. We're in the midst of the 2022 crop year signup for ARC PLC, an important safety net program that pro provides critical support to mitigate fluctuations in either revenue or prices for certain crops. In November 2021, we issued $1.8 billion in payments for producers for the 2020 crop year, and we're on pace for enrollment this year with a deadline for sign-up in the middle of March. We're committed to making USDA's farm and conservation of programs available to all farmers and ranchers and forest owners. Last August, FSA published the final rule for the heirs' property relending program to help producers and landowners resolve heirs' property and land ownership and succession issues. All three FPAC programmatic agencies are increasing outreach and, and assistance in historically underserved communities. Beginning farmers and ranchers represent more than a quarter of the farming population, but have historically experienced more difficulty obtaining assistance from USDA. FPAC will continue to prioritize assistance to these farmers and ranchers. Likewise, urban agriculture is of growing importance. FSA now has 11 urban county offices focused on programs and engagement with producers. And we just announced the membership of the Urban Agricultural Federal Advisory Committee. I look forward to your questions today and thank you again for having me. All right, thank you very much, Undersecretary Bonnie. At this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority. 
alternating between the majority and the minority. What we will do is uh, you will each be recognized for five minutes in order to allow us to be able to get to as many questions as possible. Uh, as a reminder, please keep your microphones muted until you're recognized and so we can keep down the uh, background no uh, noise. So I'm going to start by recognizing myself for five minutes. Uh, Undersecretary Bonnie, uh, yesterday, Secretary Vilsack announced a new partnership for climate smart commodities. Uh, you just talked about that. Um, I appreciate the thoughtful approach that USDA has taken by first seeking formal input from stakeholders last fall about what such an initiative could look like and taking that input in creating this initiative. The Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, which is chaired by the American Farm Bureau Federation, the National Farmers Union, Environmental Defense Fund, and National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, and has dozens of other stakeholder organizations as participants, put out a statement commending USDA on this announcement and said they were pleased the program is structured in a manner consistent with the recommendations. It is obvious that a wide variety of stakeholders were asking for this sort of initiative. As this will use funding from the CCC, um, Undersecretary Bonnie, can you please talk about the authorities that are being used for this? Happy to. So the, the Commodity Credit Corporation, um, you know, part of the role of the CCC is to promote domestic consumption of domestic agricultural products by helping to expand markets, including the creation of, of new markets. And that's essentially what we're doing with this program. This is a commodity program. This is a program on working lands to link uh, climate smart practices, to incentivize climate smart practices as part of commodity production, and then to measure and monitor that. So we think we've got a very strong link uh, to the CCC. And uh, as you say, uh, we've spent a lot of time with, with agriculture trying to design something that we believe will work for both agriculture and forestry. So the, the last administration used CCC Section 5 authorities to spend $23 billion over two years on direct payment programs to producers called the Market Facilitation Program to offset the impacts of retaliatory tariffs, a program which essentially paid out producers based on the level of price drops of each commodity. For the Climate Smart Commodities Initiative that Secretary Vilsack rolled out yesterday, can you clarify how much is being spent and is it fair to say that this initiative will help to build new marketing opportunities for farmers and add value to their products? So we've committed a, a billion dollars of this and as the secretary noticed yesterday these are um, these are pilot projects we're very confident we'll be able to deliver on all the things the CCC needs to be able to deliver on as we move forward and yes the idea here is that there's an, there's emerging interest in uh, greening company supply chains, looking at the opportunity for agriculture and forestry to, um, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We're hoping to spur private investment in that, to de-risk this in a way that the private sector and agriculture can partner together uh, on this important issue. All right, thank you. Uh, during last month's hearing with Secretary Vilsack, he indicated that uh, RMA would roll out another round of pandemic cover crop programs for the 2022 season soon. And it appears that a final rule on the program has been sent to OMB for review. My home state of uh, Illinois has a pilot project that also provides premium discount support for the plant planting of cover crops, which was complemented by PCCP last summer. It's a very popular program for producers back home. And 
Wondering if you have any sense when that program will be rolled out for 2022. Well, we're moving as quickly as we can. We know producers uh, need to make those decisions quickly. And so uh, I'll commit to you that we're, we're you know, we are moving as, as quickly as we can. We were actually surprised by the amount of uh, interest. We originally thought we might be in the 5 million acre, as I noted in my testimony, uh, close to 12 million acres. And I would know we learned something from Illinois, which is why we uh, thought about this uh, program in the first place. All right, very good. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more question. Um, I'm co-chair of the Congressional Crop Insurance Caucus, and I understand that the critical importance that the, the federal crop insurance program plays in making sure that uh, we're helping farmers manage the risk. Would you uh, take the remaining time that I have to talk about efforts that USDA has uh, to expand the availability of crop insurance products for commodities and for more regions in the country? Uh, crop insurance is absolutely critical. And, you know, over the last several years, RMA has worked to uh, create new policies, new opportunities for, uh, for producers in, in all types of uh, crops and livestock and, uh, and in different regions of the country, different types of operation, whole farm, a micro farm uh, and other. We'll continue that effort, look for those gaps, uh, continue to look for ways that we can expand this vital tool. All right, very good. Thank you, Undersecretary Bonnie. My time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, our ranking member. Thank you, Chairwoman Bustos and Undersecretary Bonnie. Um, are you familiar with the New York Times op-ed video series on uh, America's food supply that they have titled Meet the People Getting Paid to Kill Our Planet? I am. And it goes on to say, they go on to say American agriculture is ravaging the air, soil, and water, and then goes to a pretty great length to demonize uh, America's farm families. Uh, what are your thoughts on those comments in that video series, Demonizing America's Farm Families? I, I thought it was a horrible video. I think uh, farmers, ranchers, forest owners are, are great stewards of, of our land. I think they all depend on the productivity of the land, which comes from stewardship. Agriculture has the opportunity to be a critically important partner. In fact, is already stepping out in climate, water quality, wildlife, and, and other ways. I, I was very disappointed with the video. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, one, want to thank you for your comments. I'm very disappointed in it, too. And in fact, it's, it's outright... It's just flat out lying about, you know, the American farm families, you know, the American farmers that own the land, you know, our kids swim in the ponds. Uh, if we don't take care of the land, the land won't take care of us. And, and people work very hard to, to put that food supply on the shelves for Americans to, to enjoy on a daily basis. And, and American farm families are facing unprecedented challenges right now. Commodity prices are better, but look at the price of diesel. Look at the price of inputs. And I'm very concerned about the continued attacks from the extreme left. And I will tell you, and I don't expect you to comment on this because it's not fair to ask you to comment on this. But when you see uh, someone like Senator Cory Booker, who, if I'm not mistaken, sits on the Ag Committee in the U.S. Senate, making the statements that he has about America's farm families, that's... That's very disappointing to me that somebody uh, in the U.S. Senate would become an, uh, an extremist opposing uh, America's farm families. So uh, I won't ask you to comment on that, but I did want to get that out. I, I'm, I hope that the members of the committee will, will, will take a, the opportunity to, 
to watch that video and and please do it when you're not in a bad mood so that you don't you don't break something. Um, Undersecretary, the the concern I have right now with America's producers is twofold. Um, I understand that the raw materials to make the chemicals are here that we need in our crop protection products uh, to, to get the yields that we have. But even if we get the yields that we have and commodity prices are strong, the input costs are so high. Um, and, and as you said, uh, most of our safety nets are based on the, the actual commodity price. And so commodity prices may be very good and farmers still lose tremendous sums of money. Uh, what safety nets are out there today that protect the farmer in those scenarios under which commodity prices are good, but the input costs are so high that they still lose money, in many cases, more money? Yeah, I mean, you see, on, <clears throat> you're exactly right. Most of our commodity programs are based on yield and prices. The one exception is uh, the dairy, dairy margin program, which takes into account the, the costs of feed. Um, I think the best thing we can do right now is make sure we move quickly on disaster, move quickly on the uh, programs we have to make sure agriculture is in as, as, as good a situation as it can be uh, uh, to address this. Well, one of, one of the things I would point out to the committee is if you're not farming today, you're not going to be farming tomorrow. That's, I mean, you might be one of those producers that's putting $1,000 worth of, worth of produce on the shelf or $10,000 worth of produce on the shelf. But if you're not part of that one-tenth of 1% 1 that's putting 85% of America's groceries on the shelves today, you're probably not going to be in that number uh, a year from now or 10 years from now. And so I'm just, I'm very concerned about the, the, the false narrative from the extreme left and, and even members of Congress that, that are attacking those farm families that are responsible for our food supply. And so undersecretary, I look forward to working with you. I do, I do think that we're going to have some things that we're going to have to do in the future that, that maybe we haven't had to do. And when I say future, I mean short future, where we've got good commodity prices, but the input costs are so high that the farmers and, and our farm families lose tremendous sums of money. And so I look forward to working with you on those solutions. And with that, Madam Chairwoman, I'll, I'll yield the last 10 seconds and ask people to take a look at what the extremists had to say in that video. Thank you, Mr. Scott. I now recognize the gentlewoman from Minnesota, Ms. Craig, for five minutes. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chairwo Chairwoman Bustos and Ranking Member Scott uh, for the focus of today's hearing. Thank you, Undersecretary. I appreciate you being here today and especially for your leadership within USDA. As conversations around the next Farm Bill ramp up, I'm hearing from farmers and ranchers in my district about a couple of key topics including uh, risk management, cover, cover crop and conservation programs, as well as commodity programs. With those topics in mind, uh, I'm gonna dive right into those questions. First on risk management. I consistently hear from producers that uh, federal crop insurance works, it works well for them, and that the program does not need major changes. Given the significant amount of ad hoc disaster relief funding that's been made available to producers in recent years. Can you talk a little bit about the role crop insurance agents have played in helping to deliver that assistance as well as efforts USDA has undertaken to expand coverage options in the crop insurance program? Crop insurance is a public-private partnership. We, we partner with the agents, the, the insurance companies to deliver it and maintaining that partnership uh, is critically uh, important. And I think as we look at 
um, uh, the future of crop insurance. You know, we, as I noted earlier, we've developed a lot of uh, programs, opportunities for producers. We'll continue to look at ways that we can refine and improve those, and we'll continue to look at gaps in coverage where we can uh, uh, where we can create new products or, or, or new opportunities in partnership with with agriculture. So crop insurance remains uh, absolutely vital. And as we think about disaster programs, one of the things we're doing as we roll out the the disaster assistance, this ten billion dollars, is we're linking phase one to participation in crop insurance, participation in NAP participation in a livestock forage program so that producers have an incentive to, to um, uh, go to those programs and utilize those programs. I think that's one of the best ways that we can uh, encourage folks to use those existing programs. So I secondly, thank you so much for that. Related to, to crop insurance a little bit more, I was encouraged to see RMA's recent announcement on uh, PACE is USDA currently evaluating any other crop insurance policies and do any of those evaluations include a similar sustainability angle? Um, I, you know, I, I can get back to you on the, the precisely the policies we're looking at right now. I mean, one of the things that was attractive about the split, uh, the pace that uh, a split application nitrogen is brought forward with support from corn growers with others. I think we look for opportunities to create um, uh, those new products that will that will create incentives, whether for sustainability, climate, or otherwise. I think you know, in all those cases, this has to work for agriculture. We have to develop tools that work for agriculture that folks can can embed into their existing operations. And so, I think that's going to be an important filter for for all these efforts. Um, finally, I really appreciate the work the department uh, has taken on to make sure that farmers utilize the commodity programs. Um, that they're a part of the solution to addressing climate change. Two brief, two brief questions on these programs. First, how does USDA plan to continue support for these programs within the context of the circular economy that Secretary Vilsack mentioned last month? And then second, different crops of, of course involve different growing practices. Minnesota, of course, is the number one state in the country for sugar beet production, and we're proud of it. How does USDA plan to ensure that a wide range of commodity production systems and crops like sugar beets are included in climate efforts at the department? So we wanna be, um, uh, when it comes to climate change, we wanna be outcome oriented and we wanna, uh, we don't wanna dictate practices. We want, we want this to be producer led. Uh, we wanna be, uh, we want to allow different cropping systems, different types of agriculture, livestock, and allow for creativity and innovation. And so as I think as we think about climate, that's going to be uh, uh, really, really important is to, is to allow everybody to participate, small, medium, large, historically underserved. I think that that is uh, going to be uh, a, a critical importance to, to how we design these programs. Mr. Undersecretary, thank you so much. We got through a lot in a very short period of time. So uh, with that, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Craig. I now recognize the ranking member for our full House Ag Committee, uh, Mr. G.T. Mr. G.T. Thompson from the state of Pennsylvania. Chairwoman, thank you so much. I apologize for uh, the, I had some technical difficulties getting on here. Technology is wonderful. I'm so looking forward to getting back to these, all of our hearings in person because you know, uh, it, uh, it, it just can be a challenge, even sitting in your office in Washington, D.C. Uh, but thank you for this hearing. Thank you and the ranking member. Uh, 
uh, Undersecretary Bonney, uh, uh, thank you for for uh, zooming in with us today. Uh, it's it's been 23 months since the pandemic lockdowns began. Now, across America, particularly in rural America, producers are operating business as usual, and 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 thank God for that because of how they provide us our food, our fiber, a lot of energy resources, and building materials. Yet USDA is still limiting FSA offices to just 25 percent of their uh, personnel and, and limiting or even preventing farmers from going in to the physical office. Uh, I hear from farmers, uh, just not in my congressional district, quite frankly, all across the country, that this has had a negative impact on their ability to sign up for programs and get information, and they've had enough. Uh, uh, when can we expect FSA offices to return to their full staffing capacity? So we have an incident command team that is tracking uh, daily levels of, of COVID by county. Yesterday, we uh, uh, moved 804 offices from 25% to 50% as Omicron, 50% staffing. As Omicron abates, we expect to, to be able to move very quickly uh, as the data changes. Understand the challenges here. We hear the same thing you do, and, and we'll work to move as quickly as we can to reopen. Well, Mr. Secretary, you do understand America's, Americans will be starving to death if uh, the good, hardworking folks that work the fields, the farms, the forests, uh, uh, if they had that same philosophy. It's time to go back to work. Um, uh, yesterday, USDA announced uh, $1 billion for what the department calls Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities uh, to be funded by the CCC. And I have to say, first of all, I'm, uh, I did have a, a conversation with the secretary on Friday, expressed my frustrations with the department uh, for basically working as a lone wolf, working as a maverick. That's not the way we do things in agriculture. We use a farm team and to be kept in the dark, you know, basically 48, 72 hours before this announcement. And, and yes, he gave me a heads up before they're working on this. But between then, it was it was just just absolutely radio silence uh, as opposed to engaging the legislative branch. We're the ones that authorize programs. You all are the ones that execute those. I'm not sure some of your folks recognize that line, um, uh, the leadership. Now, the secretary reiterated his authority to use UC, uh, CCC funds is because the program is focused on U.S. commodities market expansion, and that, that's a legitimate use. Um, in yesterday's announcement, however, the department reiterated this point, stating, and I quote, all projects must be tied to the development of markets and the promotion of climate smart commodities, end quotes. Secretary also noted how this program could lead to a USDA uh, climate smart label, uh, which is, again, something we would want to be working with you on, not having you do, go alone on this. Uh, Mr. Secretary, what the Secretary has described is a commodity marketing program. That's why I'm somewhat confused to learn the NRCS was the agency issuing the notice of funding availability. Seems like the department is trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole to avail yourselves of the of the CCC authorities and funds. And frankly, to me, this looks like a conservation program dressed up as a marketing program. Now, as I continue to question USDA's authority to do this uh, absent congressional action, I'm, I'm also very concerned that this money will not directly benefit uh, producers. Uh, and in the end, I think we should, I think hopefully we're all in agreement that whatever we do in the climate space should primarily and, and, and right up front benefit our farmers, our ranchers, our foresters. 
Uh, but but we haven't had the opportunity to really weigh in on what you all, uh, what Secretary announced uh, uh, just uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, these and many other concerns are going to lead this committee to engage in extensive oversight of this program, its funding stream, its implementation, and its operation. I, I just wish we would have engaged uh, earlier. I'm not expecting any kind of a comment or response. I just wanted to lay out my, my, uh, uh, my disappointments on how this was done. And with that, Madam Chair, I, I yield back. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Thompson. Uh, Under Secretary Bond, if you'd like to respond to that, uh, we'll give you some time before we to turn to our next member. Yeah, just um, th this is this is a commodity program. It's, it is specifically linked to commodity production, and that is important. And while it does sit in NRCS, we'll draw on expertise from across the department, the Office of the Chief Economist. FSA and, and others as we as we move forward on this and welcome uh, a conversation with everybody. We've we've tried to listen to agriculture as much as we can. We welcome the, the conversation going forward. Well, well, Mr. Undersecretary, I just and I express this to the secretary, too, and I hope you will take this with uh, uh, in a sincere way. Uh, I also uh, I'm hoping that what you've announced doesn't undermine the fact that our are the state of American Agriculture Day with our productivity, our application of technology, innovation, and science. They're already climate heroes. I'm afraid that perhaps that was the other thing that was miscommunicated, that only the folks, uh, you know, that it's the future that agriculture will be the climate heroes, when quite frankly, they're the leading force for good. Uh, American agriculture uh, really force for good around the world in terms of a healthier, healthier environment environment and climate. So thank you so much. I now recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. Carbajal, for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties in my district are home to a wide array of specialty crop production, from wine grapes to strawberries, broccoli, and other fresh fruits and vegetables. An increasing number of producers in my region are participating in the crop insurance program. But I still hear from many of them who find it challenging to take advantage of the existing programs for a variety of reasons. Under Secretary Bonney, can you please discuss the crop insurance products that are available for specialty crop producers and share an overview of any newer products that have recently become available for producers like those in my district? So, so broadly, I think as we think about crop insurance, we're always in a dialogue with agriculture, sort of turning the knobs to make them uh, work better uh, for agriculture. We're developing specific products for, for specialty crops. For example, apples right now, we're, we're in a conversation with folks in the apple industry about uh, developing a, a product that will work for them. We've developed a uh, whole farm and, and, and lots of other um, uh, efforts that work for, for specialty crops. Um, but we recognize the need to continue to listen, uh, to, uh, to, um, to take uh, account of where uh, users are. I mentioned earlier, this is a partnership between the agencies and uh, the agent and the agency. It's also a partnership with agriculture. And so we welcome uh, your input and, and producers input to make sure that, that, that we're offering the products that agriculture needs. Thank you. Uh, my district on the central coast of California has been severely impacted by year-round wildfires as a result of climate change. This new reality has a significant impact on my local producers 
through direct crop losses, smoke taint of wine grapes, and the inability for workers to safely harvest crops due to poor air quality conditions. To help address those losses in communities such as mine, this committee passed legislation to respond to agriculture losses due to natural disasters in 2020 and 2021, last summer. Congress provided $10 billion in funding for that purpose later in the year. When do you anticipate details regarding the distribution of that assistance will be announced? We're trying to move uh, as quickly as we can. Our expectation is we'll, we'll have more uh, detail for you this uh, spring. As I noted, we're moving with livestock in March. We're going to try to make this as easy, easy as possible for producers. We're going to try and use existing data, crop insurance, NAP, uh, and, and other programs so that producers don't have to come back in. We'll then have a second round where we have gaps that we can work with producers to, uh, to fill those gaps. We're, uh, we're, we're our, you know, our plan is to move here as quickly as we can. Great. To that end, can you also touch on what lessons were learned from the 2018-2019 WIP plus implementation that you have used to help guide the distribution of disaster assistance for the 2020-2021 losses? Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, I, I think WIP worked well. I think we, you know, part of our effort here to uh, streamline this is lessons learned. How do we make this as easy as we can uh, for producers? So that was uh, part of the part of the lesson learned here. And um, and then, as I say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have two phases, both on the livestock and the crop side, with the hope that we can we can answer uh, any significant gaps in the second phase. Thank you, Undersecretary Bonnie. I really appreciate your leadership and your good work. With that, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Carbajal. I now recognize the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chairwoman, and uh, thank you, Mr. Bonnie, for joining us today. Uh, obviously, uh, yeah, we had a great hearing last week uh, from the con on the con uh, from NRCS Chief Cosby and FSA Administrator Deschanel, uh, as we are conducting a review of the Farm Bill Conservation Programs. Uh, you know, we, we're obviously uh, very focused, uh, or at least this administration is totally focused on climate change. Uh, and, uh, but, but this is at odds at what, you know, I'm hearing at home, I don't hear about climate change. Uh, all, all I'm hearing from my uh, uh, my constituents is, uh, you know, the uh, obviously this administration's war on fossil fuel, which is causing input costs to rise at unprecedented levels, uh, meaning fuel fer fertilizer and so on. Uh, they. Tell me about the constant dumping of foreign commodities such as blueberries in our domestic markets. And overwhelmingly, I hear about supply chain disruptions and uh, it made worse by the administration's vaccine mandate, school closures leaving parents unable to go to work, decreased meatpacking line speeds, and countless other agency level decisions made by unelected uh, officials. Uh, you know, they walk in the grocery store, they see empty shelves and the price of food is unprecedented. 
Mr. Secretary, uh, obviously, uh, this administration uh, took office a little more than a year ago. Can you tell me, and, and you talked about being outcome-based, uh, tell me how many dollars has USDA, as far as your responsibility, has redirected toward climate change in rural America? So, so first, I'm not sure I can give you a, a exact number, and I'll and I'll tell you why. A lot of the climate practices, climate smart practices that we think about, are actually things like timber stand improvement, nutrient management, cover crops, soil health. They're things that have broad um, uh, uh, other environmental and conservation gains. Things that improve productivity of agriculture are good for climate because we can grow more, more efficiently. That's really good for climate. Our hope here is to prioritize climate practices uh, where we can, but to do it in a way that works for agriculture, that creates new opportunities. So we'll continue to look for ways in the conservation programs to do that. And of course, with the uh, partnership initiative that, that, we, uh, that we talked about yesterday. So, so let me get this straight. So these are practices that we've always done. And obviously, rural America is one of the great uh, climate uh, change uh, uh, advocates and have been because that's the way they make their living. Uh, so why, you know, why all this emphasis? Uh, and, and again, I don't know, you know where we're moving money or whether we've got our, taking our eye off the ball here, but we got other problems we got to deal with. Uh, and uh, I want to know, uh, you know, why are we taking our eye off the ball on feeding America in the most efficient way and the safest way and uh, all of this noise about uh, uh, climate change? I mean, like I said, my people are not talking about climate change. They are very concerned. Uh, so what are we doing to address these issues? When I, when I go out in the countryside, I hear about drought, I hear about wildfire, I hear about extreme weather events. And part of our effort to address those things is about climate change as well and is making U.S. agriculture more resilient. And investments in that is going to, as I noted, is going to actually... Uh, sir, you already talked about well. everything we're doing to deal with climate change, okay? <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Everything we're doing with climate change, how much are we going to lower the temperature of this planet? Well, I don't, uh, I mean, don't aim to be a scientist. outcome-based. Tell me how much we're going to actually reduce uh, the temperature of the planet, and all of a sudden the weather is totally calm. Well, I'm, I'm not a and climate no, no modeler. More I'm not a climate modeler, but I know that U.S. agriculture is prepared to do a lot of good and to create new markets and new opportunities while they do it. Well, again, uh, you know, I think we better keep our eye on the ball. We need to address these issues. Uh, because, like I said, our farmers, uh, it, this, uh, this input cost is a real problem. And with that, Madam Chairman, I yield back. I now recognize the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Bishop, for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. And uh, thank you, Mr. Bonney, for uh, sharing with us today. Uh, let me first associate myself with the comments from Congressman Austin Scott. Uh, as well as yours uh, regarding the attacks on farm families uh, as evidenced through the New York Times piece. Uh, it obviously reflects a, a lack of understanding 
of the great difficulty that our farm families have providing the food and fiber for all of Americans, which they are, are doing uh, so well under difficult uh, circumstances. Uh, so we've got a real job uh, in educating uh, uh, the public as well as some of our members of Congress. Uh, but I want to associate myself with those remarks because our farm families deserve uh, better. Uh, let me uh, address you, Mr. Bonnie. Uh, prior to the global pandemic, and I'm speaking as an appropriator, uh, USDA staff retirements and attrition uh, had reached an all-time high, uh, leaving the department with fewer staff and less experienced staff all across the 29 agencies. Uh, this seems to be pronounced at the local level in the FSA County offices. In my district, uh, there have been anecdotal reports of timeliness issues when responding to customer service requests from county to county. With the increased workload from several ad hoc programs like payments to offset the, uh, the 2018 trade war, ad hoc disaster assistance, the pandemic relief, uh, has staffing been a concern uh, within the farm production and conservation mission area? Uh, given the crucial assistance that FSA provides you, have any suggestions for us as to what additional authorities or what additional resources uh, the department needs to address these challenges, particularly in our rural counties, uh, that we should consider in the next farm bill? Uh, how do you anticipate that the FY23 budget request will address staffing needs? And are there staffing needs that go beyond the uh, current administration's priorities? And uh, basically, do you have enough people to do the core work? We need more people. And we need both on the NRCS side and the FSA. And you're right about staff attrition. And we're looking at things like direct hiring authority to be able to, uh, to streamline that, that process. And it's critically important as you all think about the um, uh, the the 23 farm bill, you know, thinking about things like uh, technical assistance for NRCS, the ability for, for us to have the boots on the ground to provide uh, sound technical assistance to do the outreach we need to uh, to uh, small producers, medium sized producers historically underserved. Another important issue here. So, yes, there's a challenge and, and we're moving to uh, to hire as quickly as we can. Uh, thank you. Now, um, over the years, uh, uh, Mr. Barney, um, farmers of color have experienced uh, historic discrimination in the loan process from the county offices. And in my district, uh, there have been some anecdotal reports of the lack of consistency uh, in services provided from county to county. Uh, for example, I had a, a, a farmer that was told uh, that he needed to have irrigated crops in order to participate in the non-insured crop disaster systems, which is simply not true. Uh, I know it's difficult to standardize processes across uh, geographic regions and not everything can be uniform, but timeliness, the level of customer service, honesty, and the appeals process, examples of standards that should be consistently applied from county to county. Um, what additional efforts is USDA making to ensure that the same quality of service occurs from county to county uh, and that uh, uh, equity uh, and other challenges in rural counties uh, uh, can, can be accommodated? And is that something that we need to include in the next farm bill in that regard? So this is a, a critically important issue that, that USDA programs are available to everybody. 
on the loan side, we think there's more we can do in loan servicing, but we've got to make sure our our staff is uh, is able to do that, and we'll continue to work uh, to do that. Um, on on our programs more generally, making sure we have outreach partnerships both in FSA, RMA. Uh, we've just uh, 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 moved fifty million dollars in NRCS to to create some some um, uh, partnerships with folks on the ground to make sure we can we can reach er- everybody. This is critically important. It was critically important in our announcement yesterday when we talked about the importance of being able to reach all farmers. So this this remains a, a very high priority for us. I think my time has expired. Uh, I yield back, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Bishop. I now recognize the gentleman from Arkansas, Mr. Crawford, for five minutes. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you bought me the 2018 Farm Bill uh, bipartisanship, which is why I'm troubled by an example of USDA ignoring not just congressional intent. Rates in part to help beginning farmers who are frustrated being outbid by, uh, uh, by the federal government in their effort to access land to get into farming. Yeah, last month, USDA again announced it's offering a 10% inflationary adjustment that's likely to exceed the cap set in law. So my question is, what legal authority did USDA use to go beyond the caps Congress expressly set in the law? And will USDA assess the impact that its decision has on beginning farmers and purchase affordability in farm country? So CRP is obviously a very important program. We've, we've talked about that. We've talked about how important it is for hunting and fishing and, and uh, conservation more broadly. We uh, work closely with OGC as we developed the new incentives last year that we worked on and are very uh, confident that we're, we're on solid ground there. I think one of the most important issues is to make sure we get the best acres into, into CRP, marginal acres, flood-prone acres. And I think if we do that, we can find a balance with, with agriculture where the folks that are concerned about taking land out of production, that we can, that we can strike the right balance. Uh, well, Mr. Chairman, I think we should take a hard look at this issue as we craft the next farm bill. It's troubling to me that Congress can set a clear cap with clear intent only to see its bipartisan work ignored. Um, let me follow up. But, uh, consumer packaged goods companies are always looking to set their products apart in the grocery store and restaurants and now looking to incentivize production of low-carbon grains to show environmental distinction about final products. It's my understanding that growers who sell in these markets can see a premium price. Isn't that an example of the private sector being the leader and what we see from this administration? Is that the government trying to play catch up? There's, there's, no, uh, there's no doubt that there are already folks in the market. There are emerging markets for both. Um, if you look what cotton producers are doing, if you look at what uh, some other companies are doing in this space, there's, there's no doubt that folks are, uh, are, that these markets are emerging. The question is, can we do more to scale more quickly? And can we de-risk this for, for producers by providing incentives, both on the deployment of climate smart practices, as well as the measurement and monitoring? We think that's a good place for us to be. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. All right. Uh, thank you very much. I now recognize Mr. O'Halloran from the state of Arizona for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Under Secretary Bonney, I appreciate your testimony. Thank you for spending your time with our, our committee this morning. Uh, you're, in your testimony, you certainly explained the new and innovative ways 
that USDA is working with farmers to ensure that they can access critical programs that this committee worked on in the 2018 Farm Bill. Programs like administered through the Farm Services Agency and the Risk Management Agency have become of particular importance to Arizona over the past few years. The entire Southwest is experiencing significant drought, which has worsened wildfires. When people need to access these farm programs uh, that we are discussing today, is it because they, they are, it is because they are struggling. And when farmers struggle, rural economies suffer. This is why it is important to be sure that in this coming farm bill process, we get these programs right, and we are able to provide strong programs to support our farmers. Now, Mr. Bonney, uh, as you highlighted, USDA has done quite a bit to expand the availability of different specialty crop insurance products for stakeholders. However, I am very concerned regarding the infrastructure of USDA and whether Congress has devoted enough resources to make the experience better for stakeholders when accessing uh, USDA programs. When people need to rely on crop insurance programs, it is often because something has gone wrong. In Arizona, many of my constituents rely on these USDA programs in response to dangerous wildfires. Can you talk about how you are evaluating staffing needs? I know we've talked about this already. I wanna know what's going to be done on, are you going to request more money? What are you gonna do about IT infrastructure and other internal processes to make the experience better for the farmer utilizing one of the programs administered through the Farm Service Agency or the risk management agency? Um, and are you going to actually ask Congress for it and get it through the secretary and their administration to get it down to the people that we all serve? As I noted earlier, you're exactly right. Staffing is a critically important issue and we'll, we'll use our authorities to, uh, uh, to the maximum extent practical to, to help on that. I'm glad you brought IT up because that's uh, an important part of the equation as well. Um, we've got to be able to uh, have uh, allow for folks to access things like farm loans online to make it easy. And so looking for ways that that we can use IT to both reduce staff burden, but to, to open up programs to more people, I think, is 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 really, really important. Uh, you, you can imagine I probably don't want to scoop OMB or the or the uh, secretary on on budget issues, but just know that these staffing issues are are. Uh, really, really important. We need the boots on the ground, whether it's safety net or conservation programs to be able to deliver um, these programs to producers. The staffing issues are not new. They've been there for quite some time. And uh, it's not new to this administration or the previous administration. And it, it appears like something has to be done and it has to be done so that we keep the family farms up and going and make sure farming in America continues on the direction it needs to. Uh, thank you for giving us the overview of the workload of the Farm Service Agency. Uh, but uh, uh, in the office in the past few years, given several ad, ad hoc programs along with the regular farm bill programs they delivered, and what sort of workload do you anticipate delivery of disaster assistance for 2020 and 2021 will place on county FSA offices? And how uh, has the pandemic uh, impacted that workload? So I, I should take this opportunity just to, to thank the folks in FSA. We've asked them to do a lot. We've put a lot of work with pandemic assistance, our regular program disaster, and, and they've delivered. 
as we were thinking about the experience with WIP and with other programs in the disaster uh, program that we're rolling out this spring, uh, staff capacity is really important. We want to be accountable. We want to make sure we spend the taxpayers' money well, but at the same time, we want to uh, both reduce the burden on producers as well as FSA staff. Our hope is we get on the other side of disaster and, and pandemic assistance and things will, will calm a little bit. But um, even despite uh, us asking more of those staff and in a pandemic where staffing levels are down, uh, our, our FSA team is, has delivered beyond expectations. Thank you, Undersecretary. I, I just want to mention quickly that uh, we have we can have the best product in the world, the best program in the world. If we can't get it to the people, it's not going to work. So let's get it to the people that need it. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, and I yield. Thank you, Mr. O'Halloran. I uh, now recognize the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And uh, Mr. Bonnie, welcome uh, uh, to the committee. Uh, uh, during the winter months in Florida, uh, Florida is responsible for about half of the produce assumed, consumed by, uh, by, by, by America. Over the last couple of weeks, produce in my state have been experiencing extremely winter weather condition with temperatures dropping below freezing in some areas. My question would be, can you give us an overview of what you've been gathering from farmers' impact in the Southeast by the weather and what resources are currently available to help producers who have been experiencing this impact? Yeah, we've we've obviously uh, heard from producers as well, and uh, you know we have traditional uh, programs there, crop and our, our uh, crop insurance and and other programs. The disaster program that you all provided uh, resources for is tied to twenty and twenty one, so we can't access those for um, for efforts in in Florida. So we'll rely on our our you know our traditional. Um, um, uh, disaster programs and, and crop insurance to help your producers. Okay, thank you. Mr. Secretary, after Michael uh, uh, made landfall in, in uh, the Panhandle, where I am in 2018, over 16,000 forest landowners reported damage to their timber with more than 1.3 billion in losses. What lesson uh, learned uh, from the 2018-2019 wildfire and hurricane pandemic program uh, that you have used to help guide the implementation of disaster assistance for 2020 and 20 and 2021 losses, especially as it related to uh, state block grants like the one used for timber losses. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think the um, you know we we saw uh, significant timber losses, and of course when when timber's down on the ground, it tends to increase supply very quickly and, and prices drop, which only makes uh, salvaging the timber. Uh, more difficult. And so there were uh, resources uh, provided in, in WIP for that. Uh, again, this is a, uh, this is an area of, of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of concern. We're, we're um, limited in the number of tools we have there. We tend to have more tools on the, on the agriculture and, and livestock side, uh, but, but clearly it's a, a, it's a significant challenge and, and, and one that uh, deserves some discussion going into the 23 farm bill. Now, real quick, uh, before my time in, uh, Mr. Secretary, are we importing more timber into this country? We do import timber, but uh, you all know, being in, uh, uh, Mr. Scott and you both know, your part of the world produces a lot of timber and, and exports a lot of timber. We, uh, 
Uh, the U.S. is a significant carbon sink. And part of it is because people have invested in uh, in timber forest land ownership in, in places like Florida and Georgia and, and the south and other parts of the country. Okay, with that, Madam Chair, I yield back. All righty. Thank you very much, Mr. Lawson. I now recognize the gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson, for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. I appreciate that. Uh, Mr. Undersecretary, I think the crop insurance system we've got has done a really good job uh, from a customer service perspective, as well as making sure those indemnities get out in the field as quickly as possible. I know some have proposed eliminating uh, the private sector-based delivery system. Uh, any observations on that? I think the public-private partnership is a great delivery mechanism. And as you point out, we can move quickly. We can, uh, you can turn on assistance very uh, quickly, and that's very attractive. Yeah, I, uh, I would just, uh, number one, I agree with you. And number two, I would just uh, urge you, as I'm sure you would, even if I didn't say anything, uh, push back on any of those proposals, because I think the public, you said it right, the public-private partnership has delivered a tremendous amount of value. You know, and, and now I want to look towards some of these, uh, yeah, and, and I'll admit up front, South Dakota, by and large, has been uh, early adapting uh, as a state with regard to things like no-till. No, no, granted, it's still a checkerboard, right? I mean, uh, different producers can make different decisions. And even within their own property, they may make a different decision on, on one section versus another section. But as we look toward, you know, smart stewardship practices of the future, how do we balance being fair to early adapters while also trying to target scarce resources toward uh, getting a change in behavior, uh, give, give me, give us some sense of how you view that going forward. This is a critically important issue, the issue of early adopters as we think about, uh, particularly with respect to climate change. If all you did was tie the benefits from adopting climate smart practices to carbon, some of those folks that have been doing these things for a long, long time might not be able to increase their carbon stores by that that much. And so looking for ways to incentivize practices, looking for ways, you know, part of the thought yesterday with climate smart commodities is that by linking it to commodities that we can maintain and, and uh, enhance incentives for those early adopters. This is a critically important issue. You don't want to create perverse incentives for folks to come out of conservation tillage or come out of other things they do so they can get back into these programs. This issue is, is vitally important as we think about whatever it is, wildlife, whatever it is, climate, we have got to have a response that both recognizes the, the contribution that many in agriculture have already made and rewards them for it. Do we have a sense of operationally, what's the best way to do that? I mean, obviously you could do it by having a, a further look back uh, in setting your baseline. Uh, there are other mechanisms. Are you, do you have a favorite? Yeah, so you could think, you're exactly right. And there are folks out there on the ground that are thinking about a, a, a look back. Could we look back five years, 10 years? Obviously, it, it requires some modeling or some other uh, work to do that. You can also think about if you're producing a climate smart wheat or you're producing a climate smart soybean, um, where the where the uh, the benefit is tied to the practices and the and the work being done to make sure that those uh, that those commodities are produced in a climate smart way we can design incentives there that actually I think uh, maintain the um, the reward system for those early adopters uh, and then uh, one last question sir I mean as, as this committee continues 
its movement toward the next farm bill. What, what would you most want us to keep our eye on? What is the area most ripe for improvement? Well, you know, with this pilot program that we rolled out yesterday, we hope that there will actually be some learning. They will create some uh, some conversation, both on the uh, the incentives and a side of the equation as on the measurement monitoring verification. It's going to be important for us to prove up these practices, to demonstrate that agriculture has an important role to play both so that we maintain public confidence in making investments in conservation and other things for producers, but also so that the private market will continue to have confidence to invest in agriculture and invest in forestry. So one of the things we need to think about is how do we invest in inventory and other things that will provide the tools, the models, the help that producers need to be able to to make those uh, decisions. So we often think about the incentive side. There's an infrastructure of research and, and, and inventory that backs that up that's really important. Thank you very much, sir. And thank you, Madam Chair. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. I now recognize the gentlewoman from Washington, Ms. Schreier. Thank you, Madam Chair, and welcome Undersecretary Bonnie. Uh, I'd like to touch on a few issues really quickly, and I'm enjoying this conversation. Um, first, my, my colleague Shelly Pingree and I are co-leading an agriculture task force as part of the House's Sustainable uh, Energy and Environment Coalition. And with this task force, we want to build on increasing engagement of American farmers on climate change issues in the lead up to the reauthorization of the Farm Bill. We just held our first meeting identifying some shared priorities and the direction that we'd like to go. Um, but one thing we decided would be really helpful was to meet with experts in the field um, so that we make sure that we're really getting the most bang for the buck. And um, so I want to invite you. We would love to have you join our conversation to come with meet with our group and give us some direction on how we can uh, recognize, celebrate, amplify the con- contributions of our farmers who engage in climate family f- friendly practices and get your your take on what will have the most impact on either reducing or sequestering greenhouse gases. Of course, um, ha- happy to join. Thank you. We'd love to have, we're very excited to have you. Um, next, I want to just ask you, um, Mr. Undersecretary, about the Sustainable Farms and Fields Program in Washington State, which does exactly what you were just talking with Dusty Johnson about. It rewards the practices, not just uh, the, the carbon. Um, it's bipartisan, it's voluntary, supports farmers and innovation that simply um, reward the practices. And it gives different options for participation. So the funds can be used for site-specific consultations or the purchase of goods that they might need, like seed drills, um, and, and, and even direct payments in some cases for carbon storage. So this program is particularly well-suited for small and medium-sized farms, um, as well as first, first-time low-income minority farmers, because you don't have to enter a carbon market to be compensated for doing the right practices. And so I first just want to thank you for taking the time to meet with Michael Crowder from the National Association of Conservation Districts and Kirk Robinson from the Washington State Conservation Commission. Um, we are very, very grateful and I just ask for your continued engagement and support and was wondering if you could just quickly comment on how this particular Washington program fits into yesterday's announcement that the USDA is investing a billion dollars in partnerships to support America's climate smart farmers, ranchers and forest landowners. 
I mean, part of our, um, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, part of the recognition yesterday, there's there's a lot of really good work already going going in. Still, there are risks for producers that that when they undertake some of these practices, and certainly when they lay money out to measure monitoring on the backside, and that's why we think there's an interesting role for for USDA. We fully expect that folks are going to have projects already in development or underway where they may be able to partner with USDA to scale out those projects, and we'll look for those opportunities. And whether they're interested in a climate-smart commodity or greenhouse gas reductions or whatever it is, we think we can structure this in a a way that that works. So part of the idea here is to tap into many of those existing things and to allow whether it's a state, a company, a nonprofit, a conservation district, a commodity group, all those folks to come forward to build build those partnerships and and develop those those locally led uh, programs. So part of it is to is is to allow a thousand let a thousand flower bloom and to and to and to draw on that experience and to and to learn from it. So we we expect Washington and other folks to take a close look at this and 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 hopefully will will generate a lot of interest. That's great. A thousand flowers, all different, and then roll out what we've learned nationally. Um, Lastly, I have very little time, but I just wanted to touch on a piece of legislation I'm working on to modernize the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, or the SARE program. Um, This program's funded nearly 200 projects in Washington state, focusing on broad range of topics like cover crops and tree fruit pests and sustainable grazing practices and Producers and stakeholders in my district absolutely love this program because it funds research that suits their specific needs. It's farmer-led and farmer-driven, and uh, we just need to update this program to ensure it's working as effectively as possible to meet the needs of agriculture in the 21st century. Um, So I look forward to working with you and your staff on this, and I yield back. All right. Thank you, Dr. Schreier. I now recognize the gentleman from Kansas, Mr. Mann for five minutes. Chairman Bustos, thank you um, for, for having this hearing. And Undersecretary Bonnie, thank you for joining us today. As uh, we all know, it's important we get farm programs right um, in advance of the next farm bill. During your confirmation hearing last summer, several senators asked um, you about the Conservation Reserve Program, the CRP program. Uh, you often answered that it's, it's vitally important that we get the right lands in the program. <clears throat> we don't want to take highly productive lands out of the program. Um, or we, we, we don't want to put highly productive lands into the program. And I agree with that focus. Uh, according to USDA's most recent uh, national resources inventory release, one out of every four acres of land in CRP is considered to be prime farmland. In your mind, why is so much good productive farmland ending up in CRP? And what is USDA doing to achieve the shared goal of, of reserving CRP for the most environmentally sensitive acres that, that need to be in the program? So the concern you would have if you have really productive land coming in is that uh, is that they is that you know you're taking out highly productive land that obviously has uh, economics uh, economic uh, considerations as well, and that you know this this program was designed for uh, for uh, 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 more marginal lands. Obviously, it's a voluntary program. Produce, you know, landowners are going to enroll what they're going to enroll, but we can do things through targeted enrollments, continuous enrollments, partnerships through CREP that can make sure we get those lands that are really environmentally uh, sensitive. Maybe they're environmentally sensitive because they're in a riparian area, or maybe their efforts to, to deal with water issues like the Republican River in Colorado, or 
um, you know, their, their targeted uses here. And I think that's really important. There, of course, are lands that may be, uh, you know, uh, drought um, sensitive or otherwise that will come in through the general uh, sign up. Those remain uh, really, really important. But there are ways that we can both incentivize and think about continuous enrollments and others to make sure we get the right mix of lands into the program. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think the issue um, it needs to be addressed before any discussions about raising CRP's acreage cap um, really come to bear. We're going to have limited resources, as we all know, in the next farm bill and limited land on which we're farming in this committee. I think we need to prioritize the working lands program um, and make sure that the right acres are going into the CRP program. So um, thank you. Um, second question, uh, you know, as farmers are gearing up for the 2022 growing season, uh, many are having difficulty uh, getting fertilizer. We know, you know, many times fertilizer costs three, four, uh, three or four times or more um, than it did last year. Also having challenges getting key chemicals um, that may not even be available for crop protection due to regulatory and supply chain issues. If these challenges ultimately result in lower yields, in your mind, what risk is there to the crop insurance industry and in particular to the private sector um, delivery system that, that's currently really in place as these claims come forward? I mean, I guess it's hard for me to estimate what the risk is. There, there obviously is one there. And, you know, we, we want to we're sensitive to the fact that that folks are looking at, at higher input costs. And I noted before, you know, the set of tools we have is relatively limited. We are thinking about are there ways that we could help on uh, the supply chain uh, side? Um the work we've done so far has sort of been on thinking about export, the partnership in the uh, Port of Oakland, but we're open to looking at ways that, that we can address this. Our challenges is that our, our toolbox is relatively limited. Yeah, great. Uh, one more quick question. I know I just have a little over a minute, but our, my family farms in Gove County, which is northwestern Kansas, and the FSA office, um, the, the, the workers there constantly are talking to my, my dad, and I hear this repeatedly from other offices, you know, just the antiquated uh, computer systems, the inefficiencies, the amount of time it takes to log in and log off. Uh, what, what's being done there? And, uh, and what do you think needs to be done here moving forward? And, and forgive me if you covered this earlier in the hearing. No, IT across FSA and across FPAC is a really, really important issue. And um, we, we've just ad adopted an updated strategic plan, but frankly, there's, there's more to do there. And it involves both the public facing side. I mentioned farm loans earlier, but making enrollment easier, updating that to make sure we've got uh, better tools than, than we do now. And as you point out, kind of the, the, the office side of it was to make sure our folks have the, uh, the, the best technology. We've got work to do. This is going to be an important area of investment. We have to think about how we balance the uh, the the uh, workforce we have, how we how we build the workforce. There's work to do there, and I think we'll we'll do it in uh, consultation with Congress. Great. Well, thank you, Mr. Undersecretary and uh, um, Chairman Bussos. I yield back. All right. Thank you, Mr. Mann. I now recognize the gentlewoman from Maine, Ms. Pingree, for five minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Chair. Thank you for holding this hearing, and uh, Undersecretary Bonnie. Thank you for being with us. Here today, uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, I, for one, was really excited to see Secretary Vilsack announce more details about the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities initiatives yesterday. So consider me a strong supporter, and I think it's a great idea. And I know some of my colleagues have been expressing some skepticism about spending a billion dollars through the CCC to help farmers mitigate climate change. 
But I think we should all remember that last September, Congress had to pass $10 billion just in ad hoc disaster relief for agriculture. And that's on top of the support we already provide through the Farm Bill. So while some of my colleagues say, well, we don't hear about climate change from farmers, um, and it's often true, they don't mention climate change directly, but they certainly talk about the economic impact of the adverse weather effects and other things that are directly related to climate change. So I would prefer to invest in helping farmers reduce their emission and sequester more carbon in the soil, increase their resilience to extreme weather events um, then have to pay it out in disaster uh, or to see the damage and heartbreak that happens on so many farms across the country because of the experiences that we're having that are likely to only get worse. So let me ask a question about the new initiative. One of the partners, one of the goals of the partnerships uh, for climate change smart commodities is to test different monitoring and verification methodologies so that USDA is not dictating how the recipients of this funding should go about doing that. Uh, monitoring and verification is really important for us to know what the real impact of this, these projects will be. And that's something that I hear about all the time. So could you just tell us a little bit more about how USDA will ensure that the monitoring and verification methods these projects will use are both farmer friendly and scientifically sound? Yeah, so we're, we're going to ask every project that 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 comes in to have a, a, a a monitoring uh, verification program that that as part of the project and we will look at those and and um, you know score projects based on that the, the last point you made is a really important one as i noted earlier we want to maintain public confidence we want to demonstrate that agriculture and forestry have an important role to play and that these voluntary efforts work and will reduce uh, greenhouse gases and that's public facing it's also um, uh, uh, the market is going to take that into account as well and make investments accordingly. And so USDA, we need to, in parallel to the efforts going on with the announcement yesterday, we need to invest in more resources here to, to have a better understanding of where are producers doing conservation tillage, what practices they're doing, how do we measure nitrous oxide emissions reductions, methane, and all those things. It's critically important. We'll hope we'll, we'll learn some things from the uh, pilots and we hope we'll get some new technologies in. And as you know, there are a lot out there that could potentially lower the cost and increase the, the accuracy of those measurements. It's a critically important issue. Thank you for that. And I, I will really look forward to following that with you because um, as you said, it's critically important. We need to make sure that um, if commodities are identified in this way, that the public has trust in that. And actually, I thought uh, Representative Johnson of South Dakota made a really good point that I hear often is what about the ad early adopters, you know, the organic farmers who have been worrying about soil and carbon in their soil for a very long time. Uh, they say to me, like, am I going to be left behind because I'm not a newcomer? So let me just quickly switch to another topic with the time I have available. That's about the dairy identity dairy identity program and um, the recent updated rules. So um, they provide additional options for dairy farms dealing with PFAS contamination, which unfortunately is a growing issue in my state. And I know we're going to hear about it everywhere. Um, but I do hear some concerns that the new structure of the program may not provide producers with enough time to gather the information they need to make a decision about the best path forward on their farm. While Farm Service Agency can extend monthly milk indemnity payments on a case-by-case -case basis, three months isn't really a lot of time to get soil and water testing done, for example. So I'm just going to ask you if you could commit that the FSA will work with 
producers affected by PFAS contamination so that these farmers have enough time to figure out their options and make an informed decision, which, as we know, is sometimes the question of can you mitigate or do you have to abandon? So just absolutely happy to work with you. Great. Well, thank you for moving forward on that. And again, uh, I think that's a a growing problem, really critical in my state. And um, I'm looking forward to working with you. So with that, I will yield back my 12 seconds. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Ms. Pingree. I now recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. Lomalza, for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Secretary, for Undersecretary for being here. as a, as a farmer, you know, our family has been farming where we are for 90 years. And of course, I have a lot of neighbors and other colleagues. It's just agriculture is an extremely important uh, part of the fiber of this country, obviously, and such. And so when we see our shelves are emptier of food, the commodity prices are higher and higher for, for public, yet the farmers are receiving less and less. Now we get a curveball of saying, hey, you need to do things climate smart. So can we figure out how is it you grow something climate smart versus not smart at, at the field level? Because, um, you know, growers are already looking for the most efficient ways to grow crops you, using all the technology with, with water savings and the le- least amount of chemicals, leveling land, all that. And so how is this not going to throw another curveball at people in agriculture having to deal with yet another thing in addition to being out of water in California, losing the materials we have to control pests, pests with, a higher cost of fuel, fertilizer is going to double. How is a farmer supposed to look and say, great, here's another program for us to jump through because somebody wants to worry about carbon? So, Undersecretary, how, how's a farmer going to look at this? So this is voluntary, and farmers can decide for themselves whether it fits into their, their own uh, production um, and whether it provides value. Our, our interest here is actually providing value, create new markets, new opportunities, new sources of income and to de-risk it in a way that that allows producers to step into that. It won't work for everybody, but we think it'll work for a, a potentially large slice of agriculture. Sir, how is shifting a billion dollars away from CCC, which is supposed to be helping promote uh, domestic farm and uh, price supports and then keeping farmers alive in disaster after disaster or low prices or what have you, a billion dollars being shifted away from CCC into something that might be more looked at as a new program? I mean, that at the same time, the EQIP program, which is a great program that farmers voluntarily use uh, in order is so the Environmental Quality Incentive Program. It does a lot of good work on that. We've participated, all my neighbors participate in it, um, many across the country. So that improves, improves conservation in an existing program, yet EQIP has only been funded by about 27% of people that have applied and asked to be part of that. So now a billion dollars is being shifted away from things that are promoting already uh, the commodities or, or the conservation programs. How is a $1 billion program could even be defined as a pilot program? That's a lot of money. So this is, this is a billion dollars that will go f- to folks in agriculture, both to deploy climate smart practices as well as uh, measure. Well, let me give you the list here, because so, it's not even eligible for individuals. If you're a city or a county or a local government, you can get it. A state government can get it. Uh, for-profit organizations can get it. Nonprofit organizations can get it. 501c3 or not 501c3. Private institutions of higher education, meaning colleges, which already receive lots of other different types of money, and public and state-controlled institutions of higher education, as it's listed, too. So everybody but an individual is going to be able to see this money. 
No, the way it's designed is to, to have those institutions, whether commodity pro, um, commodity organization or otherwise, aggregate those individuals. <clears throat> that will lower the cost for them and make it easier for them to participate and easier them from to, to earn additional resources through this. What makes the commodity climate smart versus not climate smart? <clears throat> so there are a number of practices. In this case, what we're interested in is, is a reduced greenhouse gas emissions or carbon sequestration. There are a or lot carbon, of things. Is carbon, is carbon dioxide considered a greenhouse gas? <clears throat> carbon dioxide is, yes. Okay, versus uh, methane coming out of other byproducts? Another greenhouse gas. So carbon, what percentage of carbon dioxide is in our atmosphere? <clears throat> I have no idea. Take a wild guess, sir. <laughs> I won't even guess. Okay. When I ask people this question, they'll say, oh, man, so much CO2 must be 30, 40, or 50% of our atmosphere. And they'll say, no, go lower. They'll say, well, how about 4%? Like, no, go lower than that. 0.4%. No, it's lower than that. It's 0.04% of our atmosphere is CO2. If you put it on a pie chart, the pie flavor is so small, you, can, you can't even do it with your pen. So the number used to be 0.03. So the number's creeping up a little bit. But we're blaming everything on CO2 to weather change and all that. So the direction of all this is very disturbing that uh, we haven't even talked about forest practices underneath the USDA. I had a million acre fire, just one of my many fires that happens every year in the district. Million acres, a lot of that on USDA land. So we want to talk about CO2 and emissions. What are the practices that are going to make our forests safer and not burn to the ground every year? 140 million dead trees are in the inventory of the Forest Service just in California. And so hardly anything is getting done to promote things in forestry, which would actually make a big impact because more CO2 comes off these fires than is, you know, like that billion acre fire that I, I forget the stat, but like 10 Where years worth of car driving in LA. 10 years worth of car driving in LA. Expired. Okay. So I now we're, we're talking a lot of Virginia, Ms. Spanberger, for five minutes. Thank you so very much, um, uh, Madam Chairwoman. I appreciate uh, the ongoing discussion. And, and certainly when we, when we look at uh, the complications caused by CO2 within the atmosphere, uh, the amount is not the central focal point. It's in fact the impact of said amount. Uh, a little bit of poison is still poison. Um, and so making sure that we're looking at the impact, I think is, is the value of the conservation programs to mitigate um, the, the impact of, of said CO2 and, and our focus on sequestering it. Um, but under Secretary Bonney, I, I am really appreciative of your uh, presence with us today. I chair the Conservation and Forestry Subcommittee, and I have been encouraged by how USDA has really prioritized engaging farmers on climate change and climate solutions over the last year to the benefit of the environment and certainly to the benefit of the farmers. And as you mentioned in your testimony, climate smart farming practices are not just good for the planet, uh, but for the bottom lines of farmers and ranchers who want to compete internationally, improve their crop uh, quality and yields, and certainly lower the cost of their inputs. I'm really particularly excited by yesterday's announcement of the $1 billion in funding to facilitate markets for environmentally sustainable commodities through the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities program. This program will help ensure America's farmers, ranchers, and forest land owners can remain competitive internationally, certainly as demand for climate conscious products continue to grow both at home and abroad. 
Um, however, it's important to note that over the past decade, we've seen that as new markets emerge around climate smart agriculture, they're not just for the commodities produced within these practices, but also for the carbon sequestered by these practices. And this has led to the proliferation of voluntary carbon markets that while well-intentioned, can be confusing to the public and growers and producers alike, uh, particularly smaller family farmers and foresters. And that's why I was proud to introduce the Bipartisan Growing Climate Solutions Act alongside my colleague, Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska. This legislation would empower USDA to help farmers navigate voluntary private carbon markets with confidence. Uh, and USDA's help uh, will enable farmers to choose to participate um, and whether you know, they would choose to participate, whether they would in fact collect a new stream of revenue for their work to sequester carbon, protect their land, reduce emissions, and most importantly, ensure that um, you know, these practices are beneficial uh, in our efforts uh, to mitigate climate change. It would also create a certification program at USDA to ensure that those working in these markets are actually providing the support that farmers need to secure meaningful carbon reductions. The bill is almost universally endorsed by national farm groups um, and supported by dozens of prominent environmental groups and Fortune 500 companies. And last year, uh, it actually passed the United States Senate with a vote of 92 to 8. Uh, so we continue to uh, ring the bell of this piece of legislation here in the House. Uh, certainly, I think it's clear that it should move forward and towards a vote. But under Secretary Bonney, I would want to ask, would passing legislation like the Growing Climate Solutions Act strengthen, from your perspective, the work that USDA is doing on climate smart agriculture and forestry, particularly in the market facilitation space? Yes, <clears throat> and I want to thank you for your leadership on this. It is uh, it is really important, and it is an area of work that is really important as we think about climate smart practices, carbon, greenhouse gases. Producers need good information, and you're exactly right. There's a lot of information out there. They don't always know how to sort through it, and less chaos out there is really important. And USDA potentially has a role, as your legislation uh, points out, in helping producers sort through that, in thinking about certifying uh, uh, technical service providers and others. And so, um, and as I think we think about what uh, the secretary announced yesterday, there's actually an interesting fit there to help provide better technical assistance, better data, better better information. So. Um, yes, I think uh, we recognize that your uh, legislation fills a really important gap, and and, uh, and and I think one that that um, there'll be more and more interest going forward around this issue of standardization of of, of uh, methodologies of measurement. All that stuff is really important, and it's an area that I think USDA will move increasingly into. And, and just based on what it is you just said, I, I think that kind of to term it for the, the purposes of the rest of the committee as well, you know, if we are increasing transparency over our voluntary carbon markets, uh, it seems to me that that could really serve to incentivize farmers to make use of the existing, again, voluntary conservation programs like EPIP, uh, like RCPP, um, because those are going to be the climate smart practices uh, that that are going to have the benefits and allow them to enter into these voluntary carbon markets. Would you agree with that assertion? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so All much, right. Undersecretary Bonnie, Madam Sec uh, Madam Chairman. I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Spanberger. Uh, before we adjourn today, I want to invite the ranking member to share any closing comments that he may have. Thank you, Chairwoman Bustos. Uh, I again, Undersecretary Bonnie, I want to thank you for your candor and uh, and the work you're doing. 
I look forward to uh, working together to write a new farm bill that works uh, for America's producers and the people that are enjoying the food. And uh, uh, I do want to mention just very briefly on the environment. Uh, we can and should do a better job of taking care of the environment. But when we talk about the environment, it's not just CO2. It's our forest lands and our wildlife habitat. It's our watersheds. There's a lot more to taking care of the environment uh, than, than simply talking about greenhouse gas emissions. And certainly uh, good soil health is good for the farmer. Uh, No-till and other things that we've supported in the past need to continue to be a part of the discussion as we talk about um, the environmental practices and, and taking care of the environment as, as a whole. But uh, Chairwoman Bustos, thank you for having the committee. And again, Undersecretary, I wanna thank you for uh, your honesty, your candor, and uh, look forward to working with you. Uh, thank you uh, to our ranking member, Scott, for uh, joining me, and, and thank you to all of our members who were on the hearing. Um, Undersecretary Bonnie, thank you so much for, for being here today. Uh, we learned a lot. It was a good discussion, good questions, good answers, and, um, you know, obviously really critical for our subcommittee and our oversight work. So um, our goal as we move forward, we'll continue to seek out regular input from our producers about what's happening on the ground. Uh, we look forward to having... It could really, what would be an open dialogue, I hope, with uh, Mr. Bonnie and our colleagues uh, here, along with your colleagues at the USDA, about what the, what the needs are in the countryside. Um, let me see. So uh, let me, uh, official stuff here. Uh, under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses uh, to any questions that have been posed by a member. This hearing of the Subcommittee on General Farm Commodities and Risk Management is adjourned. Thanks, everybody.